All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. I feel like we should start off like it's a game show or something. Like, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, like a, a wedding show. You know, like there's going to be some cheesy music. Cue Kevin. <laughs> he doesn't have anything. Songs of emojis. Right, Kevin? With. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Here's the deal. Like this whole, the whole psalm today, we're talking about Psalm 45. It's a royal wedding song. Now, what we're going to hear today, it, it will not even come close to the Song of Songs. Language, pictures, images, don't worry, this is totally G-rated today. All right, so when we're talking about a royal wedding song, it's known as a royal psalm. So in Psalm 45, what I like what Nelson says is a royal wedding song, because it's a song, right? Here's what it does, okay? It celebrates human marriage. So you're going to see the celebration of an actual human uh, marriage in Psalm 45. But here it does in such a manner that the New Testament writer can apply it to King Jesus as well. OK, so the, the wedding that takes place in Psalm 45, crazy enough, points to the king of glory who's coming back for his bride. It's a cool picture. And so it really is this messianic picture. And it really does celebrate the joy of human marriage. But it also really celebrates, as Nelson says, uh, the glorious reign of Christ. You're going to see how they intertwine. And, you know, at first when I was when I was kind of going through this, I was kind of like, ah, ah, you know, wedding. And ah, it makes me think of my three daughters and I'm going to have to pay for all of it. And. Uh, and then I'm like, Jesus, just come before all of the human marriages. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about marriage if we can, just real quick. I just think it'd be fun uh, because clearly what you're going to see, what Tom Constable does, he says, I'm just going to read through some of these points. I, I just want to set the tone for the, the, the royal wedding psalm, okay? What you're going to see here is that the glorified the king as he's prepared for his wedding. So this king is preparing for the wedding. And yet at the same time related the counsel that the bride had received as she anticipated the wedding. So the king is getting ready. The bride is getting ready. And then in the middle of this, it, um, predicted that people would honor the king forever because of the descendants that were born to him. And so you have the, the, uh, uh, the bride, you have the groom, the people. And then the people then, guess what? All of this appears to speak prophetically of the ultimate marriage feast with Christ. It really is simple, and this is how simple I'm going to make it here. Here you have the king, here you have the bride, then you have the people, and then all of this leads to the marriage and the marriage feast. It's a pretty cool picture. And so uh, when you think about what this looks like, is that image of your bride has been ready and waiting for this day all her life. And the groom is, has been waiting for the bride to come. When Laura and I are getting ready to walk, walk down the aisle, I just remember my brother just, he hit me on the butt as I was walking away. <laughs> Classic Shannon move. 
Yeah, that, just that joy that now that we're together, this is what we've been waiting for all of our lives. This is what our parents have been praying for. This is what we've been praying for. And, you know, I remember after we had gotten married, we got into an old car and we literally drove maybe three miles, four miles at the most from the church to Laura's house. And they live on a, on a lake and it was fall time in October and just the leaves were just golden. And it just, it just felt like everything, the leaves were on the ground. It was just a cool picture. It just that, that one moment, you know, y'all have that moment of, that's, that's when this took place. And I think why I wanted to go there today is because human marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ and the body of Christ. There's no other way around it. So when we even remotely think that human marriage is between man and man or a woman and woman, you completely ignore what the scriptures say. There's, there's no way around it, you guys. Man is to lead his wife. Don't take it any other way than that. He is supposed to lead his wife. Here it is, as Christ led and served the church. Like, this is the model that we have. And so when you see this image of, yes, possibly, and I think this is a cool picture here. You know, here, just so you guys know, Psalm 45 was written by, not by David. Psalm 45 was written by a mascal, okay, of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are writing this, and it's for the choir director, according to the lilies. That lilies could mean shashahanim, and maybe it just means a hymn tune, okay? And really what you need to know is, is that this whole thing is a love song. Like, top 40 hits in Israel back then. For sure, if not the top. It's a love song that won everybody over. And when the sons of Korah are writing this, maybe, just maybe, they had Solomon in mind. Maybe. Here's why we say this. Here's why a lot of theologians would take this perspective. Because you could say, David, is it David? Is it Solomon? Like, who's he, who's he writing about? That's a fair question, right? As he's describing this, this wedding, well, think about this. Uh, Solomon married an Egyptian princess. Solomon was also anointed king. Solomon was noted for his wealth in gold. I should write some of these up here because we're going to come back to this. So here you have, he married an Egyptian princess. We'll get to that here. Uh, it also says he was anointed king. You'll see this language here. Again, I'm not saying it is Solomon. I'm just pointing out some of these examples. It says he was noted, Solomon was noted for his wealth in gold, right? You also see there's a close association with, what's the great city? Do you guys know the city that he was associated with? Great city of, in the scriptures it says, Tyre. T-Y-R-E, great, uh, and we'll get to this. And then I'm going to leave it at that, and we're going to come back to this part. Okay? So this would be, maybe, maybe the groom that they're talking about in this context is Solomon. It's kind of like when we talk about David is writing something, and it could be this scenario, it could be this scenario. He could be talking about Solomon. So he says this, the sons of Korah write, My heart... Oh, I should say this. There's four different ways to describe. Wiersbe says this, and this is cool. The first one is, he's described, this king is described as the gracious son of man. Okay? In verses 1 through 2, My heart is moved by a noble theme. As I recite my verses to the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So clearly we're just talking about a son of man. Clearly we're talking about the royal groom. Okay, just one of the things that gets confusing when you read the Song of Songs is like, I don't know who's talking right now. 
I don't even know who he's talking about. Is he talking about this person? He's talking about the royal groom here. Okay, he's full of joy. This is kind of a fun picture. Full of inspiration in his full heart. So when he wrote this song, he's talking clearly about, and again, uh, it could be, it could be Saul, just so you know. It could be David that he's talking about. And it could be, it could be Solomon. Because you think about this in verse two, it says, you are the most handsome of men. If you go to 1 Samuel 9, 2, Look how they describe Saul. First Samuel 9, 2 says he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive upon the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Just for this little description, maybe it's, maybe it's Saul. If you go to first Samuel 16, 12. Okay, first Samuel 16, 12. Could be David. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. So here's just a, a brief description of, of David. Interesting enough, you guys, when Jesus is ultimately described in Isaiah 53, 2. So obviously we're talking about a major prophet describing the coming Messiah. But in Isaiah 53, 2, it says this. He grew up, and this is kind of interesting. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should even look at or nor appearance that we should desire him. So when you're making these comparisons of how this individual ultimately points to the king, this is definitely an interesting one in the description because the way you would describe Jesus, many people back then, right, would not have captured Jesus as uh, a handsome individual. But in Isaiah, we're talking about you guys when he's going through the suffering. When he's going through these forms that we didn't want to see because of all that he had gone through. The only thing I'll tell you is this cool picture of grace flows from your lips. All of these men were versed. I should just, just for the sake right here, I'll put Solomon as well. All these men are versed. I mean, if you've got 700 wives, he's probably doing pretty good look-wise. <laughs> you know, he's probably not some whatever. But I do like this grace flows from your lips. It means that these guys are very well spoken. Jesus clearly was a man that was well-spoken. I mean, in Luke 4, you don't have to go there, Kevin, but word spreads because of how Jesus talks. So there's a picture of a gracious son of man, but let's go to another description. Another description that you're going to see in describing this whole situation is that Jesus, well, let me say, I'm sorry, the royal groom could be a victorious warrior. Okay, so here we are in Psalm 45, a victorious warrior, as Wearsby says, says, mighty warrior, strap your sword at your side in your majesty and splendor. In your splendor, ride triumphantly in the cause of, now look at this, truth, humility, and justice. May your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Everything I'll write in here, just it stood out, is the truth, humility, and justice. Uh, you guys have heard and watched the video of me interacting with a government official from another country. And I had compared this individual to a mighty warrior. And interesting enough, I said that mighty warrior, for me, I said the one characteristic that I saw in him was humility. It's not often when you think of a warrior that also walks in truth, humility, and justice. 
Now, I didn't call it the truth card. I didn't call it the justice card. The only thing I called out was the humility card. But I just I think it's important to see a warrior who walks in humbleness. There's nothing worse than a mighty warrior who knows he's a mighty warrior. Scripture continues on in verse five. Your arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. If we keep going here, another component of who this person is. This person is known as a righteous king. We'll start getting into everything here in a second here. It says your throne king, God, this is interesting. Your throne God is forever and ever the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Let's let's unpack this, you guys, if we can. It says this is really interesting. This is a prophetic verse here. Your throne God. Weren't we just talking about guys? Weren't we just talking about a man? Yeah, I was going to ask, did it, did it change who it's talking about, or has it been all along? He just clearly says, your throne God is forever and ever. But up until this point in verses 1 through 5, we haven't, we haven't identified this person as God. Now, it seems odd to be to uh, kind of shoehorn this verse in where it's referring to God. You'd have to assume that he was referring to God all along. I, I do anyway. It's still how I perceive that. I think you bring up a great point. The, the only thing I will tell you is, and one of them that I think really actually works, uh, and just hear this out, Chisholm, Robert Chisholm, and I really liked his stuff when I was in seminary. He said he didn't mean, just hear me out before you respond, he did not mean that the king was God, but that the king stood in the place of God and represented him. A.K.A. He serves as a mediator. Take it one step farther. This human king is the one that represents God, which you could take the argument. Well, they really are talking about Jesus. It's a thought. It's clearly a messianic direction in these language. It makes sense with God has blessed you forever in verse two as well. So don't forget and ever. It's like this is going to be in place and this language of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Can you go to Revelation 11 verse 15? So it's an interesting way to look at things. You can look at it, I think, honestly, from Rich's perspective, like, well, this could be God the whole time. But the reality is, is that uh, at some point we have to just say, I do think, though, that verse six, he is talking about God. Regardless. It says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. I can't wait to get into Revelation. This is going to be so fun. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying. So these voices are coming from heaven. And this is what they're saying out loud. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. This sure sounds like Psalm 45 verse 6. Kevin, if you would, would you go to Hebrews 1, 3? And, you know, for me, Hebrews 1, 3, it kind of, in some funny way, it puts all of this together. Think about this. The writer says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Okay, we're talking about Jesus. is the radiance of God's glory and the exact replication, exact expression of his nature. Do you know where we're going with that? It is Jesus reflecting and actually, yes, being God here on human earth. And here's what he says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
after making purification for his sins, after he came here, died for us and our sins, guess what? He then ended up sitting down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's the Psalm 45. This is image of he's sitting at his throne forever and ever. He's sitting there with the scepter of justice. Like This is Jesus. Jesus is the representation of of God. Psalm 45 verse six, your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. So here we are possibly building a case now for you know, the mediator of God. It's really Jesus. He's the gracious son of man. He's the victorious warrior. He is the righteous, the righteous king. Crazy enough, when you keep going into verse seven, and this is the last one of, of a description of how you would see the groom is, let's just say that he is the glorious Bridegroom. In verses 7b through 17. The scripture just talks about it this way. Your love, you love, excuse me, righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. (laughs) Gavin, you're scratching your head. Yeah. Here you have God as the Father and the Son. That's what you have. You have this God as the Father, yes. God as the Son, yes. And that's what you see in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 45. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy, praise the Lord, more than your companions. Now, when you talk about more than your companions, you're kind of like, ah, ah, now where are we going? Some would say, again, I'm not going to prove all of this. I don't know if I can Some would say that the Son of God, in reference right here in verse 7, is He's superior to angels. It's an interesting take, an interesting thought, but here's where I want to build this. If you go to Hebrews 1, let's go to verse 5, if you can, please. Hebrews 1, verse 5, For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are my son? Today I become your father again, I will be His father, and He will be my son. We'll go to 6, and then I want to highlight 7. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all God's angels must worship him. Verse seven. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. Now watch in verses eight and nine. We've talked about this. But to the son, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Verse nine. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy rather than your companions. Wow. So all of the sudden, (laughs) when you're looking in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 45, you can say it's Jesus. Isn't that crazy, you guys? I think it is. I think it's absolutely amazing about how here you have the sons of Korah writing about, yes, the king of glory as the groom getting ready for his bride or the bride needs to be getting ready for for the groom. So scripture just says in verse eight, myrrh, aloes and cassia perfume, all of your garments from ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. And so in other words, I think this is a neat picture. Like the king was truly surrounded by radiant women. 
His bride is prepared with their golden garments. In verse 10, here's where it transitions to uh, the bride. And, you know, at Time Revive, you guys, what, what do we always say? We already equip the saints for what? The return of Christ. The saints, in this context, is the bride. We are to get ready, the bride. We are to get the bride ready for, let's put it a different way, a return of the groom. Make sense? The groom is coming for Kevin? The bride. His bride. And we got to get the bride ready. So he says in verse 10, listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people and your father's house. You guys, without even reading the rest of this, to me, it's already saying, put your focus on the groom. The groom is coming. Let's get ready. And I got to be honest, as a man, I'm like, ah, why do we have to be called a bride? Because it's a little odd. You know, like that's that's really the, the mentality. That's why some of us, it's so hard to grasp. Wait a minute. I'm a I'm a bride. I got to get ready for a groom. But the groom is Jesus. The groom is the king. Yes, the glorious bridegroom is coming to get his bride. Yes. And here's where it gets interesting to me. In verse 10, this is just praying through in the spirit. Forget your people in your father's house. I want you to forget everything. I want you to put your focus on him. The groom is coming. And yet what happens is so many times we're consumed with everything else. You know, Tom, we were talking about wedding stuff, you know, like my wife was getting ready for the car to take us to, to her parents' house to take pictures with all of the leaves. Like that's on her mind, right? So like all of us are, we're, we're all getting things ready. And, and in a crazy way, he says, just forget all of the stuff and just focus on the groom. Please don't hear me say the things that we're doing to get ready. I'm not, I think those are all good things. But in the spiritual realm, Sometimes we let the people in our house get in the way of getting ready. In fact, I know I do. He says in verse 11, the king will desire your beauty. Like work on, how do I say this? We need to work and make our entire being about him. Like let's get beautiful for the groom. Bow down to him, for he is your Lord. There's some advice that Constable gives for the bride. I think this is cool. One is that we need to make the husband, the groom, the primary object of our affection. It, it would be weird if your wife was like, oh, I love you, but she's never around. It'd be weird if your wife just constantly says, I'm here for you, but never made any food or never helped around the house, but was always somewhere else taking care of things, but never focusing on the groom. You could say, well, like, oh, that's a sexist or a, a comment, a gender. Like we're, we're beyond that right now. Like, no, no, I actually think like that's an incredible picture of how the wife helps serve alongside the husband is actually a picture of how the, gro- the bride needs to get ready for Jesus. It's not out of context. It's not out of whack. It's how God designed this thing. I actually believe God designed my wife to be my helpmate. I actually believe she's supposed to help support my calling in life. I actually believe that that's what it talks about in Scripture. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do as we get ready for Him. Like when you have this in perspective, it all makes sense. But if you start making it more about the people in your father's house, I promise you, you're not getting ready. 
In Psalm 45, 11, he says, bow down to him for he is your Lord. Make him your primary object of affection. And guess what? That's what makes the bride even more attractive to the groom. Oh, good. They're actually getting ready for me to come. They're actually getting ready. They're bowing down and in this, in this, honoring him. This is what's really interesting. Because we honor him, she now has authority. Hmm. When you have a healthy perspective of a human marriage, you actually will have a healthy perspective of Christ's return. King, the bride, the people, it all leads to the marriage. (laughs) And in verse 13, look, you guys, I'm sorry, in verse 12, because um, you are bowing down to him, you have this authority. and, And crazy enough, people will be attracted to you because of how you're connected to the king. So it says the daughter of Tyre and this Tyre, this community, you guys, it's this community of world travelers. They're coming and going. And so these people would be They'd be bringing desirable gifts. And so they will seek your favor with gifts. And in her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious. Her clothing embroidered with gold in colorful garments. She is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions are brought to you. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. And then just in closing in 16 and 17, your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. Man, we could go to Ephesians and start describing like what a true marriage looks like. I think that's an incredible picture, but I just want to I want to go all the way over here for a second. Because I actually believe this is kind of fun that uh, the, the Apostle John had Psalm 45 in mind. And what you're going to see in a commentator uh, in Kent Hughes's book, what he, what he talks about is, is that John had Psalm 45 in mind when he wrote, ready for this? Revelation 19, 6 through 21. In Revelation 19, 6 through 21, what, what this picture is, is it says, as he looked forward in Psalm 45 to the marriage of Christ, the lamb is in heaven. He recalled how the bride had clothed herself with acts of righteousness in preparation for him. And that's what it says in Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard something like the vast, like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of a cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty has begun to reign. In verse 7 and 8, it says, Let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared her Self. And in verse 8, she was permitted to wear fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So if you go back to verse 7, what you see is, is that, yes, the wife, the bride, has prepared herself for who? For the Lamb of God. For the, the glorious bridegroom, for the righteous king, for the victorious warrior, for the gracious son of man. The bride has truly prepared herself for him. And then because of the bride getting prepared, here's the best picture in Revelation 19, 11 through 20. You can see how who would have thought Psalm 45 would tie into Revelation 19 in the end times that John then actually begins to describe the royal groom going forth. Here it is to battle in righteousness. So when the bride is ready, he goes to battle. 
It's a neat picture, isn't it? Kind of makes you wonder, are we the only reason he hasn't come back yet? I would just say, as the bride, please, let's begin to pray through how do we need to get ourselves prepped and ready for the bridegroom? I don't know what it looks like. It might mean going through one of these psalms of confession and realizing there's still sin in our lives. It might mean letting go of our parents and letting go of our friends and letting go of our neighbor's house in order that we could focus on him. That might be a start. Wherever it is, would you just ask, Holy Spirit, would you begin to show yourself, how do I need to get ready for his return? How do I need to get ready for the groom that's coming back for his bride? May we not wait for warnings on Fox News. May we not wait for the stock, the stock markets to plummet. May we not wait for, for marriages to fall apart or you know kids to get sick. May we not wait for any of these things. But Father, would you just bring forth to light right now, how do we need to get prepared for the groom? Because as a bride, I want us to be ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks.